Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. We're in a series on the book of Mark. Today is part 32, and we're going to look today at the famous account of Yeshua praying in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion. So turn with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 32. Mark 14, 32. And the text says, They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Yeshua said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here. Keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that, if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything's possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so you won't fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They didn't know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. I want us to look today at five ways this passage helps us. Number one, it helps us to see that it all really happened. Number two, to understand we have a culture. I'll get get into what that means. Number three, come to grips with the wrath of God, which is really the heart of this whole passage. Number four, discover a way to, to deal with trouble and suffering. And number five, to get the power to do this. So first... This passage shows us that the accounts of the life of Yeshua in the Gospel of Mark really happened. You know, secular skeptics like to say, history is written by the winners. Uh, Who's to say this ever really happened? Doesn't the Bible contain a lot of legends? How do you know that this really happened? Well, this passage of Yeshua facing his death is unique in all of ancient literature. The Greeks and Romans, they got lots of stories of their prominent leaders and heroes facing death and dying. And they're always portrayed, these heroes, as, as cool, calm, collected, heroic, stoic, dispassionate. For example, Socrates drinking the hemlock for his execution. The accounts of his death are that he's surrounded by his followers, and, but he's cool and he's dispassionate. He's even cracking jokes, speaking ironically. And then go to Jewish literature. Uh, the first and second Maccabees, for example, as Rusty described two weeks ago, uh, when Jews wrote accounts of their major figures and martyrs and heroes facing death, they were not cool and dispassionate like the Greeks. They were hot-blooded uh, and fearless. And they praised God as they were being sliced to bits by their persecutors. No account of a leader's death in the ancient world is anything like this account of Yeshua. Here you have Yeshua just before he's about to die, opening his heart to his disciples, opening his heart to God, opening his heart to us, the readers of the gospel. 
and talking about his struggles and his agonies uh, and his fears about facing death. And then he turns to the father and he says, is there any way, is there any way that I can be let off the hook? Is there any way I can get out from this mission? And the commentators and the historians have said for years that if you were a leader in the early first century uh, Yeshua movement, uh, the early original messianic movement, uh, and, you, and if you were just making up stories about the life of Yeshua in order to promote your religion, you would never, never make up a story like this. Never. You never would have made this story up because it could only hurt. No matter what your culture was, whether it was Jewish or Greek or Roman, no culture understood greatness, understood leaders worthy of loyalty and, and faithfulness acting like this. So the only possible reason this account is written down the only possible explanation for this account being here in the Gospel of Mark is because it happened. There's no, motive, there's no other motivation possible for including it unless it actually happened. These accounts are eyewitness, firsthand accounts of actual historical events. Now, of course, most of you, hopefully all of you already believe this, but I want to equip you to defend your faith when it's challenged. So on the overhead, number one, it really happened. Uh, next overhead, number two, this text also helps, helps us understand that we have a culture. Uh, up till now, Yeshua has been completely in control. All of a sudden now, in the garden, he starts to fall apart. Nothing seems to have surprised Yeshua up until now. Throughout the Gospels, he always knows what's going on. Nothing seems to jar him. Nothing moves him off course. But now look at verses 33 and 34, Mark, 30, uh, Mark 14, uh, 33. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My, sorrows overwhelmed with sorrow to the, my, my soul was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Look at the words used here. They're over the top. First he says, he began to be deeply distressed. This word that's translated here is distressed, also means astonished or amazed. Indeed, the King James Version properly translates it as sore amazed. Now, this is amazing that Yeshua would suddenly be astonished. If you read throughout the Gospels, nothing seems to surprise him. He's totally unflappable. The text says suddenly he began to be astonished or amazed. Something he saw, something he realized, something he experienced stunned the eternal Son of God. And it sent him reeling. Something shocked him. What could this be? We'll get, this, get to that in a moment. Secondly, it says he was troubled. Uh, and this word troubled means to be overcome with horror. So, uh, for example, imagine you're walking down a street, you turn a corner, and there in front of you is a beloved family member killed, dead, mutilated, cut to pieces. How do you feel? Nausea? Your fear and dread? It's like a, a physical cloud rising up to choke you? That's horror. And that's what Yeshua was experiencing. And in fact, in verse 34, he comes right out and says so. He says in Mark 14, 34, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, even to the point of death. He's saying, I am so crushed with horror and sorrow and grief, I feel like I'm about to die right here. That's what he's saying. Up until now, Yeshua has been totally in control, and now suddenly, he begins to fall apart. 
Uh, he's agonizing. He's struggling. He cannot face it. He's violently crying out. Now, how do you respond to that? How do you feel about that? And your answer will tell you what culture you come from. So, for example, here in the West, in modern Western culture, this text is appealing. Western people like this. They say, oh, we like Yeshua being honest and vulnerable and real and struggling and wrestling. It makes him more relatable. We find his vulnerability appealing. It makes Yeshua more real and more believable to us. But in other cultures and in many other centuries, this has been an enormous stumbling block. Because other cultures say, the idea that this is the Son of God... Uh, and he'd be struggling like this uh, and blubbering like this uh, and asking God to let him off the hook, that's impossible. And it's a stumbling block. They find this account hard to believe. They say, we find this outrageous uh, and offensive and objectionable. But if you're in Western culture, you say, this is obje it's not objectionable at all. I like this. What I don't like here in the West, I don't, what, I, what I do find offensive are Yeshua's strict sexual ethics. And where he says in John 14, 6, that I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father but, but, but through me. Now, why am I pointing all this out, these differences in culture? Because secular, liberal Westerners get offended by many things in the Bible. They say, this and that in the Bible is offensive to me, and, and it's regressive, and it's narrow. I can't stomach this, I can't stomach that. And they act as if they don't have a culture. They act as if these offending things are simply the problems with the Bible, the problems with the gospel. So, for example, you say, I just can't believe there's only one right religion, only one true religion. But if you go to the Middle East and you say, oh, there can't be just one, one religion, they would say, why not? When a secular Westerner says, I can't believe there's only one true religion, that's not an argument. That's just an assertion. It's just an emotional, visceral reaction. Uh, and there's no evidence in support of that view. It's not an argument at all. It's just a feeling. The only reason it seems so plausible to so many today in the West is because it's such a widely felt feeling in our postmodern, relativistic, secular Western culture. But it's just a leap in the dark. There's no evidence for that. You cannot make a logical case for it. It's just the way you feel because you live in, in a relativistic, radically individualistic culture that looks down on objective truth. Everyone has their own truth, we're told, uh, for what's true for them. And so in the West, this prejudice against there being just one way to God, uh, it's a huge barrier to the gospel. But think about this. If the gospel was really true, that it came down outside of any culture uh, as truth from heaven, not as the function of this culture or that culture. If it was really true, they would have to offend everyone's cultural sensibilities at some point. It would offend Western culture in these areas. It would offend Eastern culture in these other areas because the gospel is not from any one culture. And therefore, it would have to offend everyone's cultural sensibilities at some point. But they'd be different points for each culture. So what does this mean? When you're sharing your faith with today's skeptical, secular, relativistic, modern Western people, and they say, well, well, this offends me about the gospel. I can't accept that. Don't let that throw you. Tell them, well, of course, if the gospel is true, it will be offensive to you at certain points. 
In a way, if it offends you, and if it offends everyone in different ways, that's actually evidence that it's true <laughs> and doesn't come from this world. It transcends any one culture. So if you're here today and you are not yet a follower of Yeshua, don't let your problems with the gospel throw you. Don't act as if you don't have a culture and don't have your own cultural prejudices. So on the overhead, number one, the Garden of Gethsemane really happened. Number two, understand you're the product of your culture. Number three, come to grips with the wrath of God. This text helps us to come to grips with God's wrath. Because ultimately, that's what this passage is all about. Yeshua is struggling with his death. Then the way he's struggling here is not, not only unique in all of ancient literature, it's also unique in church history as well. There are lots and lots of true accounts of believers, both men and women, uh, both leaders and lay people, being martyred for their faith, being thrown to the lions, uh, being burned at the stake, being crucified. We have lots and lots of historic accounts, and almost all of them faced their death more calmly than Yeshua. They all did a better job, it seems, in facing death than Yeshua. So, for example, Polycarp, a bishop of Smyrna, disciple of the apostle John, he was killed for his faith. He was brought before a Roman magistrate, sentenced to be burnt at the stake for, for his so-called subversive religious beliefs that, that dared to question uh, the emperor of Rome uh, being a god. Uh, and because Polycarp was so uh, much beloved uh, and a very elderly man, the magistrate said, I'll give you one more chance. You can reject your faith in Yeshua, you can recant, or else you'll be burned at the stake. And on the overhead, this is what Polycarp said. He said, the fire you speak of lasts but an hour and is quenched with a little. But what do you know of the fire of judgment? So come, why delay? Do your worst. Do you see Yeshua saying, come nails, come thorns, come spear, come on, do your worst? No. So why is this, at least on the surface, almost uh, all of Yeshua's fathers, followers having died better than Yeshua? Why does it seem like that? Yeshua is struggling here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, he can hardly handle it. Why? Three answers. Number one, he was facing something that Polycarp was not facing. He was facing something that all the other martyrs were not facing. He was facing, facing something way beyond mere physical death, beyond physical torment, something that was so much worse that physical death and physical torment were like flea bites by comparison. Number two, he began to experience this anguish and astonishment and distress and sorrow in the garden. The text says he began to experience all this when he entered the garden. So in the overhead, the Garden of Gethsemane symbolically is the opposite of the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was a paradise because it had God's presence dwelling within it. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was horror and anguish because Yeshua began to experience the absence of God. But for us to get back to the Garden of Eden, he had to endure the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane, it's on the Mount of Olives, in the Mishnah, the rabbis call the Mount of Olives Har HaMashiach, the mountain of Messiah, uh, the mountain of the anointed one. This name hints at the meaning uh, of the events that took place that night. So on the overhead, 
I want you to note the convergence of the symbolism when Messiah, the anointed one, prays in the midst of an olive grove, in the place called Gethsemane, the olive press, on the slopes of a hill, of, of the hill of messianic expectation, called the Mount of Anointing, the Mount of Messiah. You know, in ancient Israel, the owner of an olive grove, he produced olive oils from his olives, how? By crushing them into a mash in a stone mill, and then pressing them under the intense weight uh, of a beam press uh, to force the olive oil out. The olive imagery suggests this rite of anointing, uh, whereby the title Mashiach, the anointed one, that's where it comes from, that's where how it's derived from. To be anointed means literally to be smeared with oil, typically olive oil. And as Yeshua prayed that night, he came under an intense pressure, such, such, such an intense pressure that can be pressure that can be compared to what an olive goes through uh, in an olive press. He says this in Mark 14, 34, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Indeed, Yeshua felt the malevolent power of evil bearing down on him. As we read in Genesis 15, verse 12, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And then in Psalm 116, verse three, the cords of death encompassed him and the terrors of Sheol came upon him. He found distress and sorrow. So as he enters the Garden of Gethsemane, he begins to experience these horrors. Up until this point, nothing upset him. Uh, nothing surprised him. He was unflappable. Uh, but now suddenly he's astonished and sore amazed. That means something happens in this garden. Something he saw, he felt, he sensed, something. And it absolutely shocked the eternal Son of God and sent him reeling. What was it? He began to get a foretaste of what he was going to go through on the cross. Well, well, well didn't he know he was going to die? Yes, but we're not talking about information here. Of course he knew he was going to die. He was telling his disciples this all along. If you've been here with us through this journey through the book of Mark, you know this, that he's telling his disciples this all the time. So this was not new information. But he was beginning to experience. He was beginning to taste or foretaste what that something was, that he was going to suffer on the cross. And this is something way beyond physical torment or death. You know, it's one thing to know something's hot. Uh, it's actually uh, another thing to experience uh, the massive heat as you draw close to the fire and you sense its unbearability. So what is this thing that Yeshua experienced on the cross that he got a foretaste of here in the garden? What is the thing beyond, way beyond physical death or torment? Yeshua tells us. It's at the very heart of what he's praying about. Look at uh, Mark 14, 36. He says, Father, let this cup pass from me. He says, I can't take this cup. I don't want this cup. This cup has been set down in front of him. He's beginning to feel it, uh, to taste it, to sense it. What is it on the overhead? All throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the cup is the symbol, the metaphor for the wrath of God. The wrath of God on human evil. It's a metaphor for divine justice poured out on injustice. So for example, in Ezekiel 23, 32, we read, You'll drink a cup of wrath, large and deep, full of ruin and desolation, and you'll tear at your breasts. Isaiah 51, 17, you'll drink the cup of his fury, and you'll stagger. Jeremiah 25, 15, 
This is what the Lord, the God, the God of Israel says to me. Take from my hand this cup, this cup filled with the wine of my wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They will drink it, and they'll stagger and go mad. And then finally, Zechariah 12, 2. Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes staggering to all the peoples around. So what's happening to Yeshua in the garden? Why is he now struggling in a way none of his followers ever struggled, or if until now, he never struggled? Because this is what he's now facing. Commentator William Lane puts it like this on the overhead. He says, the dreadful sorrow and anxiety that Yeshua experienced in the garden was not the shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering and death. Thousands of others have faced this with poise and peace. It was rather the horror of one who lived wholly for the Father and who came to be with his Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven opened before him. And he staggered and he tore his breasts. Yeshua, all of his life, because he has this perfect relationship with the Father, whenever he turns to the Father in prayer, heaven opens and love floods his life. And that's how he's able to face everything he faced. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, what was so absolutely astonishing and distressing, distressing and shocking was that he, he turned to his father, and instead, hell opened up before him. The abyss, the chasm, utter darkness, the cup. This was the cup placed before him. You see, God is the source of all love and all life and all light and all coherence. Sin is turning away from God to be your own Savior and your own Lord. So the natural consequences of sin, the absolutely fair and just judgment on sin, is exclusion from the source of all light and love and life and coherence. And so in the garden, Yeshua begins to experience this spiritual darkness the spiritual, cosmic, infinite disintegration that's called hell, of which all the metaphors and symbols in the Bible of raging fires, they're actually nothing compared to the reality, which is far worse. Yeshua begins to experience this, and he staggers. Now remember, at this point, this is only a foretaste. Now, if the, just the sight and the taste of this cup was enough to throw the eternal Son of God into violent agony, what must the full experience have been? Now, we modern people, we say, I don't like this idea of the wrath of God. I believe in a loving God. I don't like this idea of an angry, mad God, you know, sinners in the hands of an angry God. I hate that. I want a loving God. Well, let me just say two things about this very popular objection. First, if you want a loving God, you have to have an angry God because loving people get angry, not in spite of the fact that they're loving, but because they're loving. In fact, the more deeply you love someone, the more angry you get, either when someone tries to harm them or they make stupid decisions that, that harm themselves. If you see a loved one self-destructing due to an addiction, you get mad at them. You get mad out of your love for them. If you see people ravaging themselves, destroying themselves, destroying others, if you don't get mad, it's because you don't care. You're too absorbed in yourself. 
You're too cynical, uh, too hard. The more loving you are, the more angry you get. And God loves his creation. And that's why he's angry, because of the mess we've made with this world. And therefore, it makes no sense to say, I don't want a wrathful God, an angry God. I want a loving God. Because if he's loving, he's got to be angry at sin and injustice and inhumanity and at violence and exploitation. If he's loving, he'll be angry at evil and he'll bring it all before his bar of justice. Second, if you don't believe in a God of wrath, you don't know, you have no idea of your own value. A God without wrath doesn't need a cross. He would just love you in some kind of generic, bland, impersonal, costless way. He wouldn't need a cross. He wouldn't need to pay for sin. A God without wrath, he's not angry at sin or evil. He just lets it go. So a God of wrath doesn't need sin to be paid for. And therefore, a God of wrath doesn't need to go to the cross and die on it and suffer all this on our behalf, in our place, as a demonstration of the depth of his love for you. A God without justice and judgment, his love cost him nothing and therefore isn't worth much. It's not real love. It's not costly love. So here's a modern secular person, uh, and, and they say this modern secular person, their God, uh, says, uh, pays nothing in order to love you. And over here now is the God of the Bible, who because he is a wrathful God, he's angry at evil. And he must go to the cross and absorb the debt and pay the penalty and suffer this infinity of hell. Now, how do you know this first God, that this, this secular person's God, how do you know he loves you? You don't. Because it's just an abstract concept. How do you know how much he loves you? How do you know how valuable you are to him? You don't know at all. But how do you know how valuable you are to the God of the Bible? Look at the cross. Look at the price the Lord paid for your salvation. That's how valuable and how loved you are to him. He would do this for you. He would go to this depths for you. He would stagger and tear at his breasts for you. He would take your sin and experience the forsakenness of God for you. So if you don't believe in a wrathful God, you have no idea of your own value. C.S. Lewis, he wrote a series of letters to a friend uh, named Malcolm, preserved in a book called Letters to Malcolm. <laughs> well, in one of the letters, Malcolm writes this, I just don't like this idea of an angry God. Not yet. Uh, I, don't, I don't like this idea of an angry God, a God who's personally angry, who says, he says, rather, I like, I like to think of God's justice more like a live electrical wire. A live electrical wire doesn't get angry. If you break the rules of electricity, it, it shocks you. So if you break the rules of God's justice, it, it punishes, you, punishes you, but in some mechanical way. But I don't like this idea. This idea that God gets personally angry. Now, on the overhead, C.S. Lewis responds like this. My dear Malcolm, what do you suppose you've gained by substituting the image of a live wire for that of angered majesty? You've shut us all up in despair. Uh, for the angry can forgive, but electricity can't. <laughs> turn God's wrath into mere enlightened disapproval, and you turn his love into mere humanitarianism. 
both the consuming fire and the absolute beauty of his love vanish. We have in its place a judicious headmistress or a conscientious magistrate. This is what comes from these high-minded, liberalizing, civilizing analogies which can only lead us astray. Come to grips with God's wrath if you want to know your value. Come to grips with the wrath of God if you want to know his love. So on the overhead, number one, this passage helps us see it all really happened. Number two, understand you have a culture and you see things through that lens. Number three, come to you, it helps you come to grips with the wrath of God. And now number four and five together, it, you'll discover, we'll discover a way to deal with trouble and suffering and get the power to do this. Now the cultures of this world have been divided over what to do when there's, there's, there's this gap between the desires of your heart and the circumstances of your life. You see, when the circumstances of life are actually giving you the desires of your heart, well, then everything's great, right? But suffering happens when there's a gap between the desires of your heart and the circumstances of your life. And the bigger the gap, the more the suffering. So what do you do with this gap? Well, one of the answers is to say, change the circumstances, leave town, break your promises, uh, leave your spouse, Get out the path you're on and, and go in this other direction. Do something else. Go someplace where your desires are satisfied. Because your desires are what's all important. And the circumstances are negotiable, according to this view. This is the modern, individualistic, Western view. But the pagans didn't say that. And the Eastern religions don't say that. The Eastern religion, the Eightfold Path of Buddhism, uh, paganism, the Greeks, they said this viewpoint has no integrity at all. According to them, it's totally stupid to say, well, there's a gap between your desires and your circumstances to change your circumstances. According to them, that shows no integrity, no virtue. They say, keep your promises. Stay on the path. And what you need to do is to squelch your desires. Ratchet them down. Be cool. Be dispassionate. Be stoic. They say you need to, uh, to become detached. Become detached from your desires, that's the solution. That's the key to peace and tranquility. That's why Socrates wasn't freaking out when he was sentenced to death. He didn't care, he was detached. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his famous chapter on hope in, in Mere Christianity. He says what happens when there's this gap between your circumstances and your desires, he says, well, the fool's way is to try to change your circumstances. But that's a fool's way because your circumstances won't oblige. And even if you do succeed in changing them, in six months you'll need to do it again. But he says the cynic's way is to say, oh yeah, I used to want all these things. I used to have desires for love and fulfillment and adventure. I used to want all these things, but now I've stopped crying after the moon, crying over spilled milk. And you just start to harden and grow cold. Okay, so is there a third way? It's not the fool's way or the cynic's way. Yes, look at Yeshua. On the one hand, Yeshua is not squelching his desires. He's pouring his heart out to God. He says, I don't want this. Let this cup pass. This is my desire. He's not squelching his desires. But on the other hand, he's absolutely submitted to the will of his father. What is this? This is neither the pagan way of detachment nor the secular way of just running away and changing your circumstances. Here's what he's doing. He's taking desires 
and not squelching them, but rather redirecting them and even intensifying them and putting them into the Father's hands. He's saying, if the circumstances of life don't satisfy the deepest desires of my heart, I'm not going to squelch the desires of my heart, but I'm going to know that they'll only find their ultimate fulfillment in the Lord. And so I've got to start on that path, and I've got to trust him and put myself in my Father's hands. And therefore, what Yeshua does, he says, this is what he does. He loves into the suffering. He doesn't squelch his desires. He doesn't avoid the suffering. He loves into the suffering, which means he obeys for the love of the Father, even in the midst of the suffering. And then he turns that suffering into a vehicle for grace in his life, in the world's life. See, the problem with both the pagan view and the secular individualistic view is that suffering is meaningless, but not in the biblical view. If you give it over to the Lord, Yeshua neither squelches his desires nor changes his circumstances. Rather, he takes and redirects his desires and pours out his heart under God. He doesn't squelch his heart. He doesn't try to turn his circumstances away from him and run away from his circumstances. But he pours out his deepest desires to his heavenly Father. And he says, in essence, someday in you, Lord, all my deepest desires will be fulfilled. Meanwhile, I trust you completely with my life. Not my will, but yours be done. You ask, well, well, how do I do that? How do I get that kind of power? Here's the power. Well, you need to know that you, the Father, what does he do? The Father takes the cup, swirls it around, sets it before Yeshua, and says, son, if you don't take this, humanity will perish. But if you do take it, no one has ever experienced what you will now experience. So we need to ask, why? Why does God give Yeshua this foretaste of the cross the night before here in the garden? Yeshua knew in his head what, what hell was like, but how could the human Yeshua in his humanity possibly know what it was really like? So why didn't the Father, to be safe, why didn't he wait until Yeshua was first securely tied and nailed to the cross before, before revealing all this to him? Isn't it potentially dangerous to show Yeshua ahead of time what it's going to look like and show it to him when nobody was looking? Remember the setting here in the garden. It's nighttime. He's alone. The soldiers weren't there yet. Even his disciples had fallen asleep. He could have just walked away and no one would have known. And that's the point. Jonathan Edwards, in his great sermon, Messiah's Agony on the Overhead, he puts it like this. God brought Yeshua to the mouth of the furnace, to its raging flame, for him to see where he was going, so that he could voluntarily enter into it and bear it for us, knowing what it was. So that when he took that cup on the cross, knowing fully what it was, so was his love to us infinitely more wonderful, and his obedience to God the Father infinitely more perfect. The greatest act of love in the universe was when Yeshua on the cross looks down upon sinful humanity and they're mocking him and jeering him and hating him and rejecting him and he stays. He chooses to stay on the cross and to die for your sins and for mine. 
out of his infinite love for us. Remember Jonah? Remember, uh, he's, in the, he's in this great fish, and he says this in Jonah 2, verse 3. All thy waves and billows have gone over me, but I'll look to thy temple. But a greater than Jonah is here. Because Jonah was just under an ocean of, of waves, an ocean of water, but Yeshua is under the ocean of God's wrath that has no bottom to it. And yet he obeys. Remember Jacob. He wrestles with God. He won't let God go until God blesses him. But a greater than Jacob is here. Because he holds on to God and will not let God go, even though in the end he'll not be blessed. He'll be cursed. Yeshua is the Lamb of God. What's a lamb? A lamb is a substitute. What's a substitute? He comes to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Yeshua comes to live the life we should have lived, to die the death we deserved to die, to pay the price we could never pay. The first man, Adam, he comes into a garden, and God says, see this tree? Obey me about the tree. Obey me and you'll live. Don't eat from the tree. Simple enough. But Adam disobeys. And we are all the same. We disobey all the time. God says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as you want your neighbor to love you. The golden rule. Do unto others if you have them do unto you. But none of us do it, do we? And as we saw, we are cursed. We're under the curse. God says, if you obey me, you'll be blessed. If you, but if you disobey me, you'll be cursed. And we choose to disobey. But now Yeshua comes, the second Adam. He's our substitute. He's our representative. And now he comes into a garden also, a second garden. And God asks him to obey about a tree as well, the cross. The first Adam was told, obey me about the tree and you'll live. And he didn't. God now comes to the second Adam and says, obey me about the tree, and I'll crush you to powder. And he did. Yeshua obeyed. He obeyed. Why? Because he loved you. Because he'd rather lose himself than lose you. He lived a perfect life, and at the end of his life, he did the, the single greatest act of love and obedience in the history of the universe, truly knowing what it was going to cost him. Because the, why did he know? Because the Father let him see here in the Garden of Gethsemane what it was going to cost him. And knowing fully what it was going to cost him, he loved you to the end. He fully obeyed the Father's will. It was the greatest act of fulfillment of the law in the history of the universe. You and I, we disobey the law. We deserve the curse. He fully obeys the law. He, he deserves the blessing. But we get his blessing, and he gets our curse. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. On the cross, he takes the curse for your life. And when you repent, and when you trust in him, you get his blessing on your life. And he did it at infinite cost to himself. And that's the love that you have been looking for all your life. No other love, no spousal love, parental love, child love, friend love could possibly satisfy you like this. All other loves 
will let you down, but he never will. And when you see that, you now are able to trust the Lord in your suffering. And the Lord can use your suffering now to make you into something great. Are you feeling abandoned? Do you feel like the Lord's abandoned you? Wrong. If he did not abandon you under these circumstances, in the garden, on the cross, why would he abandon you now? Yeshua was truly abandoned by God on the cross. So that if you are in him, you will never be abandoned. Are you feeling guilty? Do you fear the Lord's given up on you? If he didn't give up on you, when all hell itself was coming down upon him, why would he give up on you just because you've blown it this week? You say, well, I've got people in my life who are failing me, who are asleep on me. I've had it. People in my life who are hard to love, uh, I don't want to love them anymore. Look at Yeshua. Totally let down. Totally abandoned. They fell asleep on him. They fled. What does he say? Look at Mark 14, 38. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's trying to find something good to say, even when his closest friends fall asleep on him. He says, I know you meant well. Now, when you see him doing that for them, uh, and more importantly, when you see him doing that for you, for how many times have you fallen asleep on him? How many times have you let him down? When you see him nonetheless being faithful to you, how can you give up on other people? What Yeshua did on the cross is, is, is the all-powerful medicine that will cure whatever ails you. Fall down at his feet. Adore him for what he did. And through his spirit abiding in you, become more and more like him. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. The music team will come on up. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord, for this account today of Yeshua struggling in the Garden of Gethsemane. Thank you for what it teaches us about your judgment and justice and wrath. That you love righteousness, you hate evil, you cannot wink at or, or excuse sin, but that you love us so much that you, in the person of your son, Yeshua, was willing to come to earth and bear our sin, to be our sin bearer, to take the punishment on our behalf, that we might have your life uh, and light uh, and love and righteousness. Your love, Yeshua, was not a cheap love. It was a costly love. It cost you your life. That's how much you loved us. You lived the life we should have lived. You lied to die the death that we should have died. You paid the price we couldn't pay. Thank you, Yeshua, that you endured the cup of wrath and the horrors revealed to you in the Garden of Gethsemane so that we could find a way back to the Garden of Eden. What the first Adam lost, you, Yeshua, the second Adam, you restored. And so the tree of death, that cross, becomes a tree of life. And that's Chaim for us. Praise your name. Lord, help us to deal with trouble and suffering by submitting to your will, by pressing into your love to shape and mold and refine us through our suffering. Help us to take our desires and to redirect them into your hands and find their ultimate fulfillment in you. For we pray this in your name, Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.